Hello everyone, welcome to Collaborative Edges. T today we continue our conversations on the notion of passing identity and self-representation across diverse languages and cultures. And to do this, we have invited to the studio Michigan State University professors Catherine Rue, Japanese and Korean studies, and Kirsten Fermatlich, history and Jewish studies. Hello, Catherine and Kirsten. Welcome to our studio today. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. In December 2018, apropos passing in Russian cinema, we talked in another podcast about Shainiki Koreans who would like to pass as Japanese. At the time, Catherine Rue shared her understanding of passing as, quote, an authorized movement between and through different identity categories that are not assigned to you, end of quote. To think and talk about passing in academic projects and in the classroom, Professor Ryu organized and led a faculty learning community in fall of 2018 and spring of 2019. Let's start with some questions about this community. Catherine, what conversations about passing have been taking place these months, and especially since our last podcast on Russian cinema last December? Well, we had lots of exciting events happening since we last had a, uh, this meeting. So last February uh, 22nd, 2019, we had a special guest, Ms. Claudia Barrios-Campos, and she's a PhD candidate in Hispanic Cultural Studies in the Department of Romance and Classical Studies here at MSU. And she presented her research on the figure of trickster as a passing form of, as a form of passing. And in particular, she uh, talked about the concept of trickster uh, in one of the stories, including the Huachori, I'm sorry, let me start again, Huarochiri manuscript. That's good. And uh, Claudia's argument is that the representations of tricksters and their act of passing can be actually seen as strategic negotiation and resistance to regain some power, for example, social and religious power, and it guaranteed the survival of the indigenous storytelling in the Andean colonial world. So this, this particular um, session was really fascinating to me because she talked about passing not across national borders, but between people and living things and even in, you know, inanimate things such as like rocks. And so it was interesting to see the passing happening within the text and then passing happening surrounding this manuscript in the context of the coloni colonized world. Yeah. Yes, that's something that happens in the in um, Andean culture mm -hmm. and also across Latin America mm -hmm. after the conquest. Yeah, so. yeah. Mm -hmm. So this was actually um, presented as a formal meeting. So we had a discussion. It was you, <laughs> Rocio, yes. and then we also had a moderator, Daniel Mendez, in, from your department. And then in March 19th, 2019, 
we had a book discussion. So for this meeting, we invited um, Dr. Carrie Wallach. I hope I'm pronouncing her last name okay. She is the author of Passing Illusions. Mm -hmm. And so she led our group to think about the constructions and then controversial aspects of German-Jewish identity, particularly in the context of Weimar uh, Germany. So I'm sure Kirsten will have more to say about this particular topic, but she talked about not just on passing, but uh, visibility of Jewish identity and the kind of complex negotiations that takes place in terms of how and when and why conceal Jewish identities. So that was very fascinating. And then in March, March was a very busy month for us, uh, we had a global studies in the arts and humanities uh, symposium. So for this, we invited Dr. Jennifer Robertson from the University of Michigan. And so in her talk, she didn't talk about passing per se, but she helped us to think about identity formation through our relationship to technology and the result of it, which is robots. So she talked about how we think of technology as something that's more progressive, but actually when you look at the robot industry, a lot of robots uh, embody more conventional mm -hmm. gender attributes. And she explained that as an expression of how male scientists, they are in particular a cultural space in which they do not have to question the kind of privileges that they themselves have uh, received. So even though we have this cutting edge technology, but then gender ideology yes, returns. Yeah, mm -hmm. the social constructions yeah. of, general, uh, of gender ideology uh, remain. Yeah, they yeah, are so yeah. prevalent yeah. and they are like Normalize. It's mm -hmm. part of yeah, it. yeah. So that was very fascinating. And yes. so then, in conjunction with this uh, public lecture, we also had a roundtable. Mm -hmm. So the roundtable focused specifically on pedagogical approaches to sexual minorities and curriculum development. And for this event, we had five speakers, including Jennifer Robertson, who represent different fields. And each presenter talked about how they incorporate. Um, sexual minorities as part of their uh, in-class um, activities or course design. And I, I, that was really interesting and important conversation. We also had a um, representative from LBGQ Resource Center uh, helping us to walk through the Q&A portion. And so I'm hoping that we can have uh, more of this kind of discussion next year. And just to add one more, so it's because this uh, Android talk was so interesting, we also had a little pop-up art exhibit. Mm -hmm. It's in uh, Wells Hall. Oh, cool. And so what we tried to do was um, transform at least appearance of, you know, hyper-sexuality um, of robots' body, especially androids are very sexualized. Mm -hmm. So we dressed, we covered her up, we gave more mobility. So we at least conceptually, can express that there are different ways of imagining uh, androids. Yes, I have seen that exhibit in the third floor mm -hmm. in Wells Hall. For how long is it going to be uh, there? It's, well, we, we think we'll be there for about, you know, until the end of April. But since a lot of people seem to like it, we may just have it there for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I think it should stay for a long time. <laughs> yes. Permanent. 
Okay, uh, Kirsten, you are a historian and uh, a specialist in Jewish studies. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us briefly about your ideas, projects, and contribution to the discussion of passing? Sure, yes. Um, so my main contribution is the book that I just mm -hmm. wrote. Uh, Congratulations. Uh, thank you. <laughs> it's been 12, you read the title? 12 years in the making, sure. Wow. It's called A Rosenberg by Any Other Name, A History of Jewish Name Changing in America. Um, and so I looked at over 100 years of name change wow. petitions um, in New York City civil court mm. um, and was able to trace what I see as kind of the rise and the politics and the fall of Jewish name changing. Jews are even though I didn't go in expecting this, Jews actually disproportionately changed their names mm -hmm. um, in really, really high numbers, especially in the middle of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And so I talk about the rise of this. Um, it's a response to anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. I also talk about the politics of it, um, and that's really where passing comes in the most because um, there's a real debate um, within the Jewish community um, in pretty much the 1940s, 1950s, um, that sees Jews as passing when they change their names mm -hmm. and sort of sees mm -hmm. them as moving into a different category, kind of abandoning the Jewish community um, mm -hmm. and trying to become non-Jewish, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of trying to pass within a non-Jewish community. Mm -hmm. um, and my chapter actually sort of explores the possibility, I, I think what I found mostly in my evidence is that that's not the case, that people were not for the most part. Some people were indeed trying to escape the Jewish community mm -hmm. and you know, converting or sort of really separating themselves from the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot more often what I see is that people see names as something that can be put on to use as Jews are beginning to become more successful um, in white middle class settings. They're able to get jobs which they weren't able to get before the mm -hmm. war. Um, having changed names allows them to sort of have new opportunities. And as they do so, their names are constant reminders. I mean, this is always the case when they mm -hmm. change names. It's it's kind of like walking into a room and saying, hi, I'm Jewish, right? Which <laughs> yes. they don't choose to do. And this is, oh. in part, it's because there are sort of Jewish names. Oh, that This oh. is about sort of the history of Jewish names, but their names kind of identify them and precede them. And they don't necessarily want that. They want sort of the flexibility and the power to be able to be Jewish when they want to and mm -hmm. to be able to travel in white circles and, you know, a lot of whiteness is mm -hmm. kind of the privilege to be invisible yeah. if you want to, right? Yeah, to yeah. be able to sort of, you know, invisible, I'm making scare quotes there, <laughs> which you can't see on the podcast, but, you know, to sort of walk through life, you walk through the a middle class world and not have your identity question, not have mm -hmm. your origins question, not mm -hmm. have your race identified. Mm -hmm. um, and so my argument is that most of the people that I see in the petitions, also in um, correspondence that I found at the time, also in um, even published materials that people have used before as evidence to say, oh, lots of Jews are moving out of the Jewish community. If you really read those published materials closely, they're not. They're mm -hmm. actually still really engaged in the Jewish community. They're mm -hmm. still members of religious communities. Mm -hmm. They still live in Jewish neighborhoods. And they're also changing their names as families almost mm -hmm. always. Mm -hmm. Not almost always, but large numbers of them are changing with mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, um, children. Mm -hmm. And so it's much more complicated than just sort of imagining that people are sort of um, crossing. So I use, um, and Carrie Wallach does too, and we could bring mm -hmm. in Carrie Wallach. That's how Carrie, yeah. Carrie and I actually met, um, mm -hmm. is she and I both use the work of both Irving Goffman and also mm -hmm. Kenji um, Yoshino, who mm -hmm. is at Yale, who talks about covering. So he, mm -hmm. Yoshino borrows Goffman's work on covering to sort of think about this as a much a larger spectrum mm -hmm. of activity that goes back and forth across boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, Goffman uses the term covering mm -hmm. in a very vague 
veiled allusion to Jews. And so what I do in my work is sort of suggest that that's much more what's happening, that people are not fully moving over into another border, but mm-hmm. that they are um, sort of use, they are using it flexibly when they need to so that they don't announce themselves mm-hmm. so openly. Yes, what... Um a fascinating topic. I have a couple of questions. Sure. First, the, when you say the change, uh, what kind of change is it? Is, is it phonetic, uh, spelling, translation? No, actually, mm-hmm. strikingly, and that happens with other groups that mm-hmm. they do do more translations. There's very few translations. What mm-hmm. they are doing much more um, is lopping off. So, like, the the title is a Rosenberg by any other name, but they might call themselves Rose. So oh. Rose would be a very classic Jewish mm-hmm. name, actually. Oh, yeah. um, or Burke, if you see the name B-E-R-K-E yes. yeah. or B-E-R-K, that's mm. frequently a Burke, Berkowitz. Mm. Um, and so there's – and I have a few others. But then they also have names where they've chosen a name that is – I don't like to call it anglicized because – a lot of these names, because you might also, like the name Moses, for example, mm-hmm. they may take a name that has actually a Jewish meaning mm-hmm. and is per, is actually an anglicized name, right, is a name yes. that actually mm-hmm. works in English as itself an anglicized Hebrew name and make it into Mark, right? Mm-hmm. So they are they are getting rid oh. of kind of the markers of ethnicity, mm-hmm. um, sometimes in names that are perfectly pronounceable, like Epstein is a very pronounceable name, right, even though they might say in their petition, I want it to be able to pre- pronounce better, but they might call themselves Edwards. They're choosing names that are um, not noticeable. I think mm-hmm. the, the best way, I call them anodyne. And they are looking for names passing, that people won't. That yeah, works with exactly. the passing. Yeah. Yeah. How, how interesting. I'm asking you this because in the case of Latin America with mm-hmm. the indigenous populations that were conquered and colonized, you know, of, of those, the languages, is, the indigenous languages spoken in what becomes Latin America are completely different from the Romans languages from mm-hmm, Spanish yeah. and the Romans languages yeah. of European. So what they usually did, Kirsten, was translation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for instance, or uh, well, the other thing is that the indigenous languages were oral in the sense that they didn't have written script, alphabetic script, mm-hmm. although they did have the equivalent of written expression in, mm-hmm. in many yeah. other forms mm-hmm. that were not understood uh, by the Europeans at the beginning. But uh, what they do, therefore, is that, um, and, and I give you my own example. Yeah. Kispe, my first last name, is a Quechua word mm. that means shining. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So it was actually pronounced more or less jespi. Oh. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And what happens is that the Spaniards hear it is perhaps something like what happened in Ellis Island, mm-hmm. what I hear, I write, you know, in, when it comes to the name. So the name becomes Kispe, the one you all know. And then it's a marker. It's mm-hmm. a marker of mm-hmm. race and ethnicity and discrimination because it's an indigenous last name, etc. But on top of that, uh, and this is one of the good things that my uh, specialization in colonial uh, uh, history uh, has helped, I noticed, I, 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 I was able to gather from the documents I uh, have worked with, that many Kispes or Hespis translated their names to espejo, which means mirror. Oh, um, for shining. And there is many people with that last name. Interesting. And then I didn't know until I found 
the explanation. That's mm-hmm. that's yeah, and that's why I was asking you that yeah, question about that. Translation. <laughs> they prefer to make translations. Yeah, so I want to say case. two things about that. Yeah. So the first thing is that it doesn't happen at Ellis Island. So that's <laughs> yes. actually one of the okay. points of my work, even though it's not my argument per se, but most historians and um, and and genealogists and anybody who studies this, it doesn't happen at Ellis Island. Um, mm. pe- name changing doesn't happen at Ellis Island. Um, yeah, but phonetic spelling changes? No. So most people, okay. so they, it, Ellis Island, um, they, if you look at pictures, they actually have ship manifests. Yes. So any changes yeah, that are right. taking place are taking place with people's ticket buying that mm-hmm. happens on the other side okay. of the mm-hmm. world, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's not happening. It's not an official U.S. position. It yes. is. It might be much more about the documents that you are using in your native country or when you get to Germany, wherever your boat is leaving. Okay. Um, it's going to happen. It's. It might have happened at some point during that period, or it might be kind of a mythology that has actually mm-hmm. grown up. And it's one chapter of, of yeah. my book is I part of the mythology. I think it's part of the urban legend. Yeah, it's, exactly. And the, the cha- one chapter and, of my book talks the, about that emerging. And the cinema <laughs> and the media. Yes, exactly. Uh, right. A lot of it post-1965, yes. after the, after Ellis Island is kind of re- um, be, begins to become, it had been left in disrepair and abandoned right. for years. And so it's actually after it becomes reimagined as, as a national park that people begin to see that as the place where their names uh-huh. were changed. Yes. But it doesn't actually exist yes. much more before then in people's imaginations. But okay. I was just a small thing yes. that I just wanted to say. But I do think, so it is true that, so Jews, part of when you say a racial marker, I'm curious about how that works. So Jews, the, their names become racial markers because they get their last names belatedly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they do become racial markers because only Jews are getting their names in, within Europe. They are mm-hmm. getting their names much later than the rest of the population. And so when you say that he's bad, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. What is it about it that it's a racial marker? Is it the Q-U? Is it the, oh, is it the is, word? Kinspe has other last names like Waman. Uh, I'm, uh, uh, people in the Andean countries uh, immediately know that's a uh, name of indigenous origin. It, but so it's w- a what is it? That, but what? Oh, so it's th- it's just the word. So it's, it's not the word. things yeah. about it. Yeah, it's what that, happened, that actual word. And what I can tell you has happened to me is that oh, your la- people telling Peruvians telling me in Peru or outside of Peru, your last name is Quispe, but you look white. What happened there? <laughs> so that is wow. a very uh, a strong yeah. uh, statement. But I have had other experiences where the last that last name comes up and then even more so the contracts with the other last name annually who is from my mother because mm-hmm. my mother was daughter of Italian immigrants. Uh-huh. So annually is Italian. So the combination doesn't click hmm. on top of everything. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. So it was and and then of course we, we have a different understanding of race and racism in mm-hmm. Latin America because it's sure. very social and um, it it, it it corresponds to skin color and phenotype phenotype, but it's it's different the way it works here mm-hmm. in yeah. the United States. I mean. Well, and I, what I was going to say is that for Jews, they're getting their names in Europe, and mm-hmm. there yeah. they are very much the outsiders, and mm-hmm. it's not based on skin color at all. Yeah. Um, and actually, exactly. the name is yeah. actually frequently what is the marker. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Did you, you look yeah, like you had to say question. something, Catherine? Yeah. You're yeah, like yeah. looking, yeah. like so, raising your hand. <laughs> so I, I'm just wondering, you know, for those Jewish 
population that changed their names, mm -hmm. did they ever reclaim back? Because that happens a lot with Koreans in Japan. Yeah, very rarely. Oh, very rarely. Very rarely, mm -hmm. yeah. So, so um, they don't go back to no. the, oh. even no. now, no. the oh. very new rarely. generations. Okay. I won't say no at all that my final epilogue mm -hmm. talks about um, a family that chooses to, and there's a few other examples mm -hmm. of people who have chosen to, mm -hmm. um, but like I found none in my petitions. Oh, I found I like a few Italians, mm -hmm. actually, um, that because other groups change their names mm -hmm. too, it's just that Jews yeah. are doing it disproportionately, mm -hmm. but very few. So what Jews do do to sort of reclaim now, now that you know, ethnic identity yeah. is a more comfortable thing, yeah. and anti-Semitism is less popular and doesn't prevent you from getting jobs and things mm -hmm. like that in the same way. Um, people use first names, so whereas they might have chosen a first name that would have been a name that was very explicitly trying not to be a Jewish name, mm -hmm. um, now you see Jews much more choosing, say, a Hebrew name oh, or see, a name that sort of feels like an immigrant name, like mm -hmm. Max or mm -hmm. you know, in, or Sam, names that you know their grand their immigrant grandparents might have mm -hmm. had. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, they do that, but nobody brings back the old names. Wow. Yeah. yeah, but not very, nobody, yeah. not nobody, but but well, many fewer, many fewer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'd like to go now to mm -hmm. um, the difficulties of teaching about this. Mm -hmm. And I, that's my next mm -hmm. question for uh, both of you. Mm -hmm. So, um, Catherine, how do you think this learning community um, has expanded or opened new possibilities for our pedagogical approaches, mm -hmm. the young research. Yeah. I'm passing, I'll, I'll ask the same question to Kirsten, <laughs> and how difficult is this? Because I'm thinking about what our conversation and I, I think in the difficulties of bringing this in the classroom. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, my experience of actually dealing with, for example, sexual minorities mm -hmm. in, in my course, um, it only happened like last year. And I, I wanted to add Zainichi module, and I also wanted to talk about sexual minorities. So it all depends how you design the course. And I didn't want people to think that, oh, Koreans in Japan are weird, or people with different sexual orientations are different from us. So I started with something much broader, which is like a national identity. So we, we studied Japanese um, formation of national identity in response to the West in the turn of this century, like 19th, uh, 20th century. So that there they can already see that when um, Japan encountered the West, Japan became you know, very emasculated and they take, took on the feminine side of the equation. Mm -hmm. And so that we already learned that um, power structure is actually expressed through the gendered relations. And that when then, then we saw that in the context of Zainichi, so post-colonial um, period, that Japanese themselves then treated outsiders like Koreans exactly in the same way. So it's not necessarily that Japan, Jap Japanese people abuse minor, you know, minorities or outsiders, but this is how the power dynamic works. Mm -hmm. So it's not, you know, blaming one particular group or one particular nation, but we have to look at how power, the system of power works, because there's always someone with more power, someone with less power. So after we have contextualized uh, identity formation within the power structure, then we move through Zainichi module and then sexual minorities. So by the mm -hmm. time we get to uh, the final module, 
we had a better sense of all the different forces that shape one's uh, sense of identity, I mean, collective identity as well as individual identities. So, but I also want everybody to have um, some understanding of how to talk about difficult topics such as sexual minorities. So we all took a um, tutorial that's offered by LBGQT Resource Center, mm -hmm. and that enabled us to have the same set of vocabulary. And that helped us to have a conversation. And I used uh, anime, and this anime actually portrays very young students from elementary school to junior high school. And you know that's a transitional period, and these characters suffer deeply. And uh, my students were really able to empathize with them and see for themselves that you know these children are so young and these struggles are really real. It's it's not like they're performing because they don't you know, children don't know yet why they have this um, gap between what they look like and how they feel about themselves. Mm -hmm. So that was very. Um, moving experience for me as a teacher to see how my students responded. And also I knew that while we are discussing this transgender issues, there are a lot of students, maybe not a lot, but some, some students are dealing with this, these kind of issues as their personal issues. So I just wanted to create an environment when, in which we can approach this with respect, sense of respect and openness and uh, I, I, I don't know how successful it was, but in terms of everyday you know, conversation that grew out of this module was very thoughtful. And, and I think we just need to do more of you know, this. Mm. And, yeah. and I need to continue on that. Mm -hmm. uh, Kirsten, have you had the opportunity, I assume, to teach about this topic or at any level? So uh, uh, the, my, the, my own yes, topic? Yes. So it's interesting. Um, I, I did assign my students an article of mine last year. And it's interesting that for me, I want students to see it more nuanced. I don't think I, I introduced it within the context of um, anti-Semitism. I learned a great deal from the seminar that, that mm -hmm. um, Catherine organized on pedagogy um, and really the conversation about sort of bringing it in with intentionality. Mm -hmm. I, I brought in my work on name changing to talk about anti-Semitism. Um, and I have a large unit on anti-Semitism. But I was really, it was interesting to me that when students wrote their papers, the nuance that I had hoped that they would get, mm -hmm. you know, um, was not there. Like oh. people were not as sympathetic to people changing their names as I feel like I am in mm -hmm. my own written work. Oh. And I feel like incorporating them within a discussion of anti-Semitism offers the context for mm -hmm. understanding why people are making the decisions. But still in students' papers, there was a lot of judgment, which is really, in some ways, yeah. really what I wanted to write against. So thinking about some of the stuff that you talked about makes me think about how um, I, it did make me think it's not so good to introduce your own work because, of course, you feel more. <laughs> you, feel you have to defend more, your work. You have too. to defend your stuff. <laughs> yes, and you, feel you're, like, you expose wrong? yourself. Yeah, yes. exactly. And you think, why didn't you understand what I was trying to say? <laughs> so I think if I were to organize, I still I still talk about my material in lecture, but I don't. Um, I haven't asked them to read it because I was so struck by how many people were critical of the people that I was trying huh. to be sympathetic about. I think if I were going to bring it in again, which I'd like to, mm -hmm. I think I would try to do something more like what you did in a. Mm -hmm. in in a much more, as you say, intentional way to really mm -hmm. sort of think through options and choices. Um, um, I, I, yeah, I, I think I think that was a really I really liked. I liked that you had people do um, the the tutorial. Mm -hmm. I mean, I thought a lot of that, and especially the way we talked about sort of intentionality mm -hmm. in that discussion, the ways you know. 
um, having people see a larger um, a format and a structure. Mm-hmm. And I was actually thinking I at the at the conversation, um, I had brought up that I, in talking about sexual minorities, yeah. I had tried to teach about um, les- Jewish lesbians um, in a much earlier um, time, like when I first started teaching here in 2001, 2002. Um, and I received a ton of resistance from students. Um, they were very uncomfortable. They didn't want to talk about at it. At the time. At the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think some of this has changed over time. Mm-hmm. I've introduced a segment on gay and lesbian rights since mm-hmm. then, and it's been much more successful. But I think part of that is the change in time, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, you know, our, 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 our world now. has changed. Their mm-hmm. world has changed. But I also think that it was the lack of intentionality. I do much more what you do in sort of building out an entire um, uh, semester that mm-hmm. is about difference, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. sort of talks about ju- difference um, within the Jewish community mm-hmm. and different ways that difference mm-hmm. is treated. Mm-hmm. And I think that incorporating gays and lesbians within that model mm-hmm. permits for um, more considered conversation about mm-hmm. it than I think it was when I mm-hmm. first brought it up yeah. and I actually yeah. have you know some thoughts about uh, using the category like sexual minorities or uh, diaspora or ethnic minorities because if we maintain that there's always this um, you know minority versus the mainstream and so when we talk about passing only in relation to this marginalized groups then we kind of re- reinforce that division Again, so I was thinking about uh, maybe using something like transborder, mm. right? Mm. Then it kind of flattens out the uh, playing field, mm. right? So it's not just that only certain people have to pass, but we all always go, th- we walk, you know, across in between particular categories. And so then I can uh, discuss, for example, um, mainstream, the so-called mainstream author and Zainichi author in the in the same uh, you know uh, on the same page, right? Mm-hmm. They, one is not privileged as the mainstream, one is not minority, but we just look at how they deal with bordering you know issues, border mm-hmm. issues. Yeah. Okay, um, we have to. I'm I'm watching the time also <laughs> because <laughs> Catherine has another commitment. So, Catherine, I would like to uh, talk briefly. What is happening next yeah. with this um, learning community, faculty learning community mm-hmm. on passing, and what are the plans for next year? Yeah, so I'm happy to report that we're going to continue on the same theme of uh, identity formation mm-hmm. and passing in global contexts. So we will have the same kinds of um, events. So we will have public lectures and we'll have external speakers, and this time we'll have internal speakers. So I'll be reaching out to you. Sure, <laughs> so, no that, so that and ultimately I'd like to have um, a body of internal speakers who can mm-hmm. then later uh, put together an edited volume maybe oh, in one cool. or two years. I really want to read. Yeah. Thank you. I know, <laughs> learn more about your topic. Oh, it's yeah. it's yeah. fast, and it will resonate beyond mm-hmm. the so. Jewish yeah. community. I yes. hope so. Yeah. Beyond. Hope so. Yeah. And it does. I do talk. The last chapter <laughs> yes. is actually all about non-Jews, actually, because yes. I bring it up to a contemporary. So I'm glad. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then we will also have external speakers, and we are still in the process of finalizing uh, who will be coming to join us. But I know for one speaker, and she will be talking about... Um, lesbian-themed literature in Japan mm-hmm. and in Japanese culture, uh, Lily, it's, in Japanese, is Yuri. Yuri is a symbol of lesbian. So mm-hmm. it's going to be, so next year, oh, really? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. next year will be the 100th uh, 
anniversary of UD literature. So uh, we'll have a speaker who will come and talk about uh, that particular uh, topic. And then she will also lead a workshop. And the workshop will be on uh, Japanese anime that deals with transgender identities. So how do you you know, translate that into English when in the original the subject is not explicitly stated? And then we'll also have another, probably another one or two round table uh, topics okay. dealing with challenging topics. And then uh, what else? Um, I, I think that that's quite a bit for now. Yeah. <laughs> and then next year it will be uh, Professor Mark Bernstein, who is you know, our colleague, and he's a scholar of Judaic and Islamic civilization. And so we, under his leadership, we will have another successful year of learning community, I hope. When do activities uh, uh, resume again? In September? Yes, so it, it's a you know, whole entire yes. academic yes. year. So each month, there will be at least one event of some sort. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. Uh, well, thank you very much uh, for being here today. I, um, uh, I would like to conclude... I don't want to, but I have to, <laughs> to conclude this conversation, thanking our guests today, um, Catherine and, and Kirsten, and invite you all to attend the new activities and presentations and roundtable on passing uh, the next academic year starting in September 2019. Um, thank you for being here today. Well, thank you so thank much for having us. Thank you for yeah. having us. It was great. And last but not least... The ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any official entities of Michigan State University. I also want to thank our technical producers, Nadav and Danielle. Tune in for our next podcast. Thank you very much and have a great end of the semester. Thank you.